1 Corinthians chapter 15, just to kind of get our thinking caps on, I've got a sort of a question to, to get us thinking. It's sort of a Christmassy question. And the question is this, what is it that you long for? In many ways, this is what the Christmas season perfectly captures. It's, it's the, thing, the theme of longing. Every time I walk past my living room, I see a Christmas tree with presents. And if you're anything like me, you long to know what's inside. My wife doesn't even put my presents out until like Christmas because I always open them up. I'm terrible. But it's not just Christmas. It's not just Christmas. Every season provides something we long for, something we are excited for, something we're dreaming about. Maybe you long for Christmas vacation or summer vacation or graduation. Maybe you long to finish that deadline. Or maybe you long to hear the doctor say that the cancer is in remission. Longings morph over time. Maybe they might even get maybe more sophisticated in some ways, but predictably, all of us, we all have longings. We all have things that we dream and yearn for. And so I wonder this morning, what is it that you long for, that you want? Underneath all the wrapping paper of the ultimate Christmas gift, what is it inside that box for you? What do you yearn to receive in this world? Last week, we turned our attention to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for us as a church. The church in Corinth was denying the resurrection. Now, they weren't denying that Jesus was resurrected. And they weren't denying that there was an afterlife. What they were denying was a bodily, physical resurrection for the future. And what we saw last week was the reality that at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel message is the physical resurrection. You take the resurrection of the dead away and you have something else altogether. And not only that, we learned last week that the resurrection isn't just something ethereal or abstract, but it's something practical that we need for our Christian life in the present. And now in verses 35 through 58, Paul turns again, to the topic of the resurrection. He's not done. But instead, he's going to talk about what is it? What what does it look like? When will it happen? What is the nature of the resurrection? And so we could summarize Paul's kind of exhortation to the church this way, and it should be on the screen behind me. It's not only reasonable to believe in the resurrection of the dead. It's also what we long for in this world. That's what we're going to look at. So there in verse 35, Paul introduces this section with a a stark contrast, right? There we see the conjunction, but. We read, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You can almost hear Paul's kind of sarcastic tone, can't you, when you read it? He's addressing skeptics. 2,000 years ago, there were many beliefs about the afterlife. 
Some thought, well, in the afterlife, it's the spirit or the soul that, that, that survives, but the body, no, that, that ceases. The, in death, the spirit is unshackled from an embodiment prison. Others in Paul's day, like the Epicureans, believed in a sort of annihilationism. They believed that at death there was a cease of being. That's all there was. In Paul's days, there was a common funeral saying, and it went something like this. I was not. I was. I am not. I care not. That pretty much summed up the Epicureans of the day. And so when Paul came preaching, not only Jesus' death, but then Jesus' physical resurrection, and that his physical resurrection were the first fruits of our future physical resurrections, well, you can only imagine. It was controversial. The Greeks hated it. It was sort of disgusting. A spiritual resurrection, maybe. Physical resurrection? No, no, no way. We actually see this sort of attitude in the Bible. If you look at Acts 18, or sorry, Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. And we read this in verse 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. And some said this, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. After all, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What Paul preached about the resurrection, it was strange. And then when you keep reading, you read in verse 32, Now when they heard, after Paul preached to them, now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. They scoffed. Right? They, they snickered. Paul's teachings were not only strange, not only were they offensive, it was a sort of bad joke. It was laughable. And so Paul predicts Corinth's mockery and their skepticism in verse 35, and he goes on to explain, actually, the resurrection, it's not unreasonable to believe in it. They thought that Paul was the fool for believing it, and he says, actually, turns out you're the fool. And what we see in verses 36 through 41 is Paul kind of turning that idea on its head. Let's, let's read it together, starting in verse 36. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another of glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Years ago, I, I read this wonderful missionary autobiography book called The Peace Child. And this is written by Don Richardson about his journey from moving to uh, what was then called Dutch New Guinea. And he moved there from Canada. And he moved there to work with the Sawi people, which were cannibalistic headhunters. And so he moved his family into this community and he learned their language. And so as he learned their language, finally he, he 
made relationships, inroads, and then he shared the gospel with them. And as he shared the gospel, he then realized that there was a big, big problem. Because as he explained the gospel, they mistakenly thought the hero was Judas. Judas was a trickster. Judas betrayed Jesus and got away with it and got rich. Judas is the hero. The butt of the joke is Jesus. And so you can imagine the, the tension and the problem with Don as a, as a missionary. How do, you, how do you share the gospel? How do you explain the gospel when Jesus is not the hero but Judas is? So Don prayed. And then as he was just watching one day, he saw a ceremony a ceremony that the tribe did. You see, the, the Saudi people, like I said, they're kind of cannibalistic, warring tribe. But every once in a while, they had to make peace with another tribe. And so to do so, they had a peace ceremony. And so what they would do is they would come together, each tribe, and in order to have peace, each tribe would give the other tribe a child. The symbolic gesture was pretty clear, Right? We won't attack your tribe because it would be like attacking our tribe. You are now raising one of our children. So in order to have peace, a child must be given in this context, in this culture. And so Don sees this and instantly he goes, I know how to share the gospel. It's through the Prince of Peace. It's through the Incarnation. And so he began to share the gospel through this ceremony. And then he saw this amazing fruit that came as a result of it. That Jesus is the ultimate peace child who comes to make peace with humanity through his life, death, and resurrection. And so Don affectionately calls this kind of um, peace ceremony a redemptive analogy. And so the book really ends saying, I wonder, he as just kind of a missionary says, I wonder if God actually embeds other redemptive analogies in pretty much every culture as a mechanism and a bridge to the gospel. What we see in verse 36 is Paul pointing out some redemptive analogies in nature that point to the reasonableness and validity of the resurrection. Like I said earlier, some were mocking the resurrection and they said, dead people don't come back to life. Experientially, that doesn't work. And Paul says, really? Just open up your eyes. There, there, there are resurrection analogies all over the place. And so in verse 36, he starts talking about a seed and says, just consider a seed. Just consider how a seed works. You take a seed, you sow it, you put it in the ground, and then it dies. And out of death bursts forth life. And just think of an apple tree. If you want to grow an apple tree, you've got to plant an apple seed. And in order for the apple seed to grow or the apple tree to grow, the seed must die and then burst forth life. Death, in this sense, is a precondition to life. Now, the DNA of the tree is the same as the seed, but the point remains, Paul's point remains, the seed must be buried for it to be transformed. Dare I say, it must be buried for it to be resurrected. God baked a resurrection analogy in the created order, in the natural realm. 
Paul then goes on to point out other things in creation. Verse 39. Humans, animals, birds, fish. Verse 40, the heavens. Verse 41, sun, moon, stars. Sounds eerily similar to Genesis 1 and 2. God created all of these things. God's God's mastery as a creator is vast, isn't it? Look at all the varieties. But God just doesn't create. He also creates according to kind. God's created all sorts of things, but each creation has a particular fitting environment. It thrives in a certain environment. So animals on land, birds in the air, fish in the sea. Stars have their role and their responsibility. So does the moon, so does the sun. All of them were fitted by God within its own context and environment. And so Paul's saying, so if God does that with fish and birds and air, if God creates all of these different things to fit in a particular environment and to thrive there, couldn't he create a physical body that would thrive in the world to come? And the rhetorical thrust is, of course he could. Of course he could. God is the master inventor. Just think of all of that he's created. I mean, it's enormous. Biologists are still discovering new species all the time. And so when you think of his vast creation, it's easy to think, well, God could also create a way in which our physicality, our our physical bodies would be fitted for the world to come. Paul in this section is really saying it's reasonable. Just, Just open your eyes. It's reasonable to believe in the resurrection if you just think about it. And then, starting in verse 42 and 43, Paul breaks this analogy and he starts explaining some of the differences between earthly bodies and resurrection bodies. Look at it with me, starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Resurrection bodies are imperishable. They're glorious. They're powerful. They're spiritual. Some translate this when you think about natural and and the contrast here. Some translate it as they're supernatural. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't describe my, my body. I, I did a little research and I found out that last year alone, the global anti-aging market was $50 billion. And in the next five years, I think it's going to go to $250 billion. We spend billions and billions of dollars fighting a losing battle, don't we? Our bodies are slowly decaying. They're breaking down. That, that's our experience. So when Paul talks about this, it's almost so abstract that we can't even, you know, imperishable bodies, what does that even look like? How would you even experience that? What would that even feel like? And, and Paul kind of anticipates that we can't even wrap our mind around it. And so he says, I'll give you the perfect example. Actually, in some sense, it's the only example. Look at verse 49 or 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, 
became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as it is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul says, well, there is one resurrected man that we can look at to figure out what this looks like. Paul here is quoting Genesis 2. And he's contrasting two men, Adam and then the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Adam was created by God, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, uncreated from eternity. Now, we've seen this contrast before, haven't we? In verses 21 through 24. Adam is created by God from the dust of the earth. Now, the first Adam was created not to die. That was his initial reality. We think of death as inevitable, but it wasn't Adam. That wasn't the original plan in the garden. Death is an intrusion. It's a virus brought on by Adam's sin. It is the ultimate curse. Physical death wasn't manifested apart from sin in the garden. Death was the curse of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And as a result, Adam as our covenantal head, we all are cursed with that same curse, the curse of death. That's the man from dust. That's, that's, that's the first Adam. There's a second Adam, Jesus Christ, who may have been, in one sense, cursed by death himself, but God then vindicated his life, and he rose from the grave bodily. He was witnessed. He was touched. He, people ate with him. They experienced him. Jesus wasn't some disembodied spirit. There was a physicality to him. It was most assuredly transformed, but it was nevertheless a physical, embodied, post-resurrection experience. And so Paul's saying that our future resurrection is patterned after Christ's physical resurrection. I think sometimes we think that the most important thing or maybe the only important thing is the soul or the spirit. And so we'll think in terms of, I just have to save their soul. That's, that's, I just, this whole, everything's going to burn, so I just need to save them. We might even think of it this way, that uh, recently I was watching my daughter and she was drawing a picture. And I could tell that she was unhappy with what she was drawing. And so she crumpled up the piece of paper and threw it in the garbage and started all over. I think that's how we think about God. That he created, was unhappy with it, crumples it up, throws it in the garbage, and he's going to start all over again. But that's not exactly the metaphor that we have. God is refashioning the world. It's less like a garbage dump, and it's much more like a recycling plant, which works in the Northwest, doesn't it? God is refashioning the world. He's recreating it. He's transforming it. Body and soul. 
yes, don't misunderstand me. The soul is important. We need to be saved from our sins. But, but it's not just that. Our souls need to be redeemed, but so does creation. We learn in Romans this, that Romans is groaning. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labored pains until now. Not only that, not only creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we await adoption. The redemption of our bodies. God's redemptive plan is not just to resurrect the spirit, but to resurrect body too. God has bigger plans than just saving your soul. He's going to recreate it all, refashion it. God's plans are cosmic. Because God's not just, you know, the God of redemption. God's also the God of creation. Both will be refashioned. Now, what does this look like? And not only that, but when is this going to happen? Well, we need to keep reading to answer that question. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Hosea and Isaiah. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you guys notice that trumpet language? In the Bible, trumpets sounding, it's, it's, it's the day of the Lord. That future day when Christ will return. That's what Paul's referring to here. Sin in this world and in our lives made us unfit for the kingdom of God. But when Jesus returns, when the trumpet sounds, in a moment, at the twinkling of an eye, we will change, we'll be transformed, we'll be refitted for new creation, from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal. Some will be alive when Jesus returns, this says. Some who have already died are still awaiting that physical resurrection. And yet both will rise on that day. And at that moment, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. 
And not only that, but it's not just that death is swallowed up in victory, but death is mocked. Death is looked down on. Death is broken. Because in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, is hidden our own victory. That's our longing. That's our ultimate longing, the longing for rest in that day, in Christ's own victory brought on by his death, in which he will conquer fully his final and greatest foe, death. Now, if you're not a Christian, I wonder, what what do you make of all of this? Perhaps it kind of sounds like a fairy tale. And yet, it's my conviction that there there is something within us all that longs for this sort of reality. When we look at suffering and war and bloodshed and injustice and evil and poverty, we want those things to be righted. Deep down, we want to know that that's not all that there is. And so Paul this morning would remind us all that there is a coming day when every wrong is made right, when justice will reign and death and sin and suffering is no more. But there's a problem. And Paul reminds us in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our rebellion, our sin, makes us unfit for God's kingdom. So we need to be transformed. And Jesus Christ does just this. Jesus dies and is raised, and then he transfers his own righteousness, his own perfect existence, and he transfers it to all those who believe and have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, such that then you are fitted yourself for the kingdom of God because it wasn't your good deeds or your own righteousness or lack of righteousness. All of those things disqualify us. It was God's own son and his righteousness. So if you're not a Christian and you want to know more information of what it looks like to not trust in your own righteousness but in someone else's righteousness, we would love to talk. You can talk with anyone almost in this church. They would love to talk more about what that looks like. Come see me after the service. Now for the Christian, the question still remains for all of us. What is it that we long for? Do you long for new creation? Do you long for Jesus' return? I, I remember really early on in my Christian walk, I remember in a, I was in a prayer gathering and a friend prayed for Jesus' return. And I didn't say it, but I felt it. I don't want him to return. I had things I wanted to do, places I wanted to see. I wanted to get married. I wanted to finish college. I wanted to see the world. Jesus' coming would impede on my plans. I think that's sometimes what we think. We have our hopes. We have our dreams. We long for these certain realities. And to think about Jesus' return, well, it's a sort of a spiritual killjoy. That's how we view this world. And yet, part of that is because we think heaven is boring. 
we think we're just either disembodied spirits or we're, you know, you know, babies with harps and trumpets or whatever the Hallmark card is. But that's not heaven. Take whatever joy you have, whatever joy you've experienced, that, that ultimate cataclysmic joy, and then magnify it untold and you get heaven. There is nothing boring about this reality. Every single joy and pleasure and satisfaction that we have in this world, all it does and all it's meant to do is just point us to the ultimate joy and happiness and contentment and fulfilling that we'll find in the world to come. There will be no sin, there will be no want of sin, and there will be no want of want of sin in that world. Because on that day and in that place, God himself will be in our midst. That's why the Bible consistently says that, that ultimately our inheritance is in heaven or our inheritance is in, and you could fill in the blank, our ultimate inheritance is God himself. The best part of heaven is that we get God himself. At the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, in one of the last chapters in the Bible, chapter 21 of Revelation, John describes the new heaven and the new earth this way. Verse 3. And I heard a sound from heaven, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I think the most cherished and overlooked word in that one verse is a preposition. With. It comes up three times. God is with man. God will dwell with us. God will be with us. And we will be, and God will be our God. Is that your longing? Your longing to be with God without the curse of sin and death? Paul ends and concludes in 58. After describing this great and wonderful day and Christ's return, Paul writes, Now, therefore, brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what Paul does is he connects this, this doctrine. He connects this future reality, and he says, it's important, not just to get it right on the test, but actually to take resurrection, to take our future resurrection and the reality of that and pull it into the present. You want your faith to be rock solid and steady and immovable? You want to do good in this world? You want to love your neighbor? Be heavenly minded. Be heavenly minded. Now, how can we apply this? Well, one way, I'll just give one. One way is that when we look at the joys we experience, let's say at Christmas, that great Christmas present that you wanted all year that you get, well, one way is to remind yourself that all of those little ways that we can experience joy, all they are are a, an echo. They're, they're just the shadow of the real thing where pleasure and joy and happiness finds its origin. But then also, what, what do we do with suffering? 
You see, the, the resurrection and Jesus' return isn't just something that we can think about as a joyful thing, but it's also a joyful thing that helps us in the context of suffering and sadness. A few months ago, uh, my wife and I got some news that um, some very good friends of ours, their, uh, their son had cancer. So they, one night he was feeling pain and went to the emergency room and they did some tests and found out that he has cancer. And in the midst of all of this, He's my daughter's age. In the midst of all this, I decided to write him a letter. I didn't know how he was processing it. I wanted to help in some way, and so I wrote him a letter. This is not his name, but we'll call him Kyle. This is what I wrote. In the midst of him processing as a little boy the effects of cancer in his life, I wrote these words. Kyle, I've heard about your recent time at the hospital and your upcoming treatment. In seasons like you're in, I find that stories can be quite comforting. So I thought I might tell you and share a story with you. It's an old story, older than even your parents. It's a story about a lion and a boy. The boy stumbled upon another world called Narnia. Now the boy, up to a certain point, caused a lot of disaster on Narnia. Boys from time to time come up with some form of mischief for another. Eventually, the boy worked up the courage to speak to the lion and asked the lion a question. This was his question. Could you, may I, please, will you give me some magic fruit of this country to make my mother well? You see, the boy's mother was sick, and he wanted so badly for her to be well, as all little boys would want. And what would the lion say? Well, up to this The boy had been looking at the lion's great front feet and huge claws on them. Lions are scary beasts, aren't they? But now, in despair, he looked up at the lion's face, and what he saw surprised the boy as much as anything in his whole life, for the lion's face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with the boy's own that for a moment the boy felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Not much later, with tears still in his eyes, the lion spoke. My son, my son, said the lion, I know grief is great. Kyle, this isn't just a story. The story of a boy and a lion is a pretend story, but at the same time, it's as real as pizza and as chocolate and as anything you can touch or feel. There is a lion, and his name is Jesus. And like the lion in the story, he too looks upon little boys, and in the midst of their pain, he too loves them. He knew much sadness. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get through this. He knew much sadness in this life. And because of the sadness he went through as he died for boys like you, Jesus can say, like the lion once said to a boy, my son, I know, grief is great. As I write these words, know that I am praying to the real lion. He knows. 
I'm praying that his paws wrap you in his strong arms. I'm praying that his love rests upon your beating heart. And I'm praying that you would be comforted by his never ending, his never leaving, his never failing, his never forgetting promise. With each step you take, the lion will walk beside you until happily is ever after. Until death is banished. Sadness is no more. Grief is forever forgotten. Have no fear, boy. The lion knows he's conquered. Rest in him alone. Sometimes I think we think of doctrine or we think of the resurrection or we think of these truths as just things to talk about in an academic setting. But what do you do in the midst of suffering like that? I know many of your stories and I know many of the suffering that you've all experienced. How do you wake up in the morning? How do you survive the the darkness of that dark day? It's in a future reality. It's in a future hope. It's in Jesus Christ himself. So I'll end the way I started. What do you long for? What is your longing? What, What do those longings point to? All of the pleasure we experience in this world ought to point us to the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate origin of that pleasure, God himself. Every pleasure, every joy, every present we get is just an echo. What do you long for? When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the immortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we, um, we are grateful that in the midst of, of the, our hills and our valleys, the good days and the bad days. We're thankful that it's not our faith that makes us, that that, that gives us solace, Lord, but it's you and your rock, solid presence and promises. Lord, we look forward to that day when you swallow up death and sickness and brokenness and wipe away every tear. And so we pray, Lord, in closing, as the church has always prayed, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.